as we come to this third Sunday of Advent, we want to look this morning at what was said to us from the text that was read. And I ask you to turn, turn if you please, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, from which the message comes this morning. Let us pray. Father, this is your word. We did not manufacture it. We did not meet as a committee to determine whether this is or is not. This is your word. We bow in submission to it. We pray that the one who inspired the word will himself teach us the word this morning. As a common human being stand before you redeemed through the blood of the Lamb, so may the Holy Spirit again give life to God's word through the human vessel he has chosen. Deliver us, Lord, from not hearing, but deliver us more from hearing and not doing. Guide us into your truth and transform, it, transform us by it for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen. I am not one to do a whole lot with some of the emphases that we have at Christmas. I find it somewhat um, disturbing, and, uh, but I thought I would bring something to your attention this morning. And, and I have never been, nor do I give a lot of credence to the 12 days of Christmas. But it's interesting from an in, uh, information that I've gathered that the price of the Lord leaping and the ladies dancing has spiked up this holiday season. Other items, too, have become more expensive, and some cost the same. Buying one set of gifts mentioned in each cost, uh, each of the verse is $27,393 in stores, or 7% from last year. According to the so-called Christmas price index, uh, which looks at this each year, and if you put the 364 items repeated through the carol, you will pay... $114,659.51, or 6.9% more than last year. Last-minute shoppers will turn to the Internet, and they will pay even more for the gifts. There we go. They will pay $173,000 if they want to buy the gifts. We were surprised to see that such a large increase from year to year given to the overall benign inflation rate in the United States, so says one of the experts. The federal government's core consumer price index rose only 1.7%. In three decades since the, the list was started in 1984, year-over-year year increased have averaged 2.9%, which is exactly the same number of, 
of the, the broader U.S. inflations. But it is a fickle list because the price of some items barely budge while others have soared. Seven swans cost $7,000 a year in 1984, while the cost of a single partridge went from $12.57 to $15. One pear tree puts the partridge, you put the partridge in, 30 years ago was 1995, but will now cost $184. The cost of nine ladies dancing is now $7,553, are 20% more than last year. While 10 lords are leaping, jumped from 10% to $5,243. Seven items on the list cost the same as they did last year, including gold rings, turtle dove, while pipers piping, drummers drumming, and the pear tree showed only a modest change up or down. The swans are the most expensive, $1,000 each. The eight maids of milking still cost $58 just because the federal minimum wage hasn't risen at all. The cost. Anything that is meaningful, this is trivial, but anything that is meaningful cost. The only thing that will not cost you, and it will cost one way or another, is someone gives you something of value to them that can become valuable to you. The text that was read for us is calling to the church to just reflect upon the cost of Christmas. Paul is talking to the Christians, to the church, and he's calling them to a lifestyle that is costly. And it took Christmas to illustrate what the cost was for Paul to say to the church, this is how you are to behave. You and I, as a part of the body of Christ, have a calling. But the calling is so costly I had Ellie read just from verse 5 where the illustration begins. But it, it, it begins in verse 1. When we get to verse 2, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What I am calling you to, to do, to behave, to adapt your life to. I am calling you to see that illustrated in the incarnation of Christ. It is a life that will cost, cost you your very reputation. I didn't read verse 11. Because in verse 11 it says, the cost of this, this call is compensated later on because it says, Jesus who came down from heaven to show the cost of this lifestyle, God also highly exalted him. But we put the cart before the horse. You see, we say we want to be exalted now without coming down. I, I want my cake and I want to eat it now. And Paul is saying, for you to demonstrate for the church to be a unique entity upon the face of this earth, 
is a lifestyle that is so costly that you will see the cost in the incarnation or the coming of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. In the Christian story, God descends. He comes down into space and time. In the human story, we go up and we do our very best to keep ourselves there. It doesn't matter what it costs. We do everything to make sure that we keep the position we have and we will see how Christ teaches us how to live a life of humility based upon the grandest story that has ever been told. Paul begins this way. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this mind in you. It is a mind-transforming experience where I begin to think just the opposite of everyone around me unless they are a part of that mindset as well. So listen to what he says. Let this mind be in you. Or, or some translation, this attitude. Have it in yourself. He's talking to you and to me. This attitude was also in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to give the illustration. Here it is. Who, although he existed in the form of God, verse 6, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Or as some translation says, did not think it robbery. Let me try to unpack that for you. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Where is this mind when we think of it? Is it a mind that, that came when Christ was born? Or was it a mind having to do with things that were eternal, eternal things, things that we could not see, things that we could not understand, but all of a sudden, what we could not understand, what we could not see, came into full view. The first thing the Apostle Paul said, he wants you to think in, 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 in this fact, that Jesus Christ, before he was born, was authentically divine. He was authentically divine. Who exists in the form of God? The word form is not speaking of shape because God is spirit. It is speaking about someone who exists with equal dignity. That Jesus Christ in heaven in the eternal years existed one with the Father. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So what made God God was precisely what made Jesus God. The same essence, the divine essence in God the Father was the divine essence in God the Son. It is not something that was conferred on Him. It was something that was essentially His. When we, when we, when we think in terms of who Jesus is, the angels in heaven 
bowed down before Jesus the same way they bowed down before God. Because in seeing God, the Father, they were seeing God, the Son. Before the little song, O little town of Bethlehem, the angels in heaven knew one God. Three persons, but one God. Our world has become so secular that now it wants to do away with the miracle of the incarnation because by getting rid of the incarnation, we will have no illustrations as to how we are supposed to live. Get rid of, 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 the, of the, the, the mystery of Christ in heaven coming to earth and we don't have to worry about anything we can live the way we want. Jesus lives with, lived with this consciousness. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, The Father and I are one. You will see how this is important as we look at the rest of the verse. Let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who existed eternally, in the same essence as God. Now look at this. Did not regard equality with God a robbery, as the King James puts it, or something to be grasped. The word robbery in the Old Testament, or the Old King James translation, or the word to be grasped, can be understood in three ways. He didn't exist with this idea that what I am, I robbed from God. He didn't exist in the eternals as what I am, I have borrowed from God. He didn't exist with the idea that that which I have, I have to protect. Because if he's if what I have doesn't belong to me, I have to protect it. It was interesting to me to discover that you know one of the fears that Elvis Presley lived with? One of the fears that Elvis Presley lived with is that someone was going to take away his kingship. All through his life, what he had depended so much upon him working to make sure that the, the, the place he had risen to was not taken away from him. He was grasping onto it. Jesus did not see his equality with God, something he was grasping after. This belongs to me. I've got to protect it. I've got to make sure that he doesn't take it back from me. That's what the word means. He didn't think it something to be grasped. It has, it, 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 he, he was saying, it is mine. Uh, you know, it's... it's I don't know about Tina's love for the arts. But one of these days she'll say to Marlon, let's go to the concert tonight. And Marlon is going to say, the what? <laughs> and Tina will say, when we were going together, you didn't mind going to the concert. And Marlon will say, that's because I was trying to win you. 
now that I win you, why do I need to go to the concert? <laughs> you see, Jesus was not playing games with his equality. He didn't say, now that I have it, I don't need to, to worry about anything. See, he didn't need to worry about anything because it was his. It wasn't something he had to grasp. It wasn't something he had to protect. His essence, his oneness with God was such that he was free in it. It was not something that he had to have mental gymnastics seeing what is the best way I can keep it. He didn't have to bargain with his father for it. He didn't have to protect it from his father's grasp. He didn't, his father didn't have to protect it from his grasp. It was something that was his, and because it was his, it was free to be exercised. And so this is where we go then from the integrity of, of Christ. We come to this amazing descent in verse 7. Look at what, look, look if you please in verse 7. Because he didn't have to grasp it, he didn't have to protect it. Because his essence was God's essence. Look at what he did. He emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a servant. Here, my friends, is the amazing descent. Here is the cost of Christmas. Existing for all eternity in the oneness of God's essence. At a certain time, Jesus in the, in the courts of heaven, in this tremendous communication in the Godhead, offered himself, knowing that the incarnation means that he will have to humble himself. In heaven, he was willing to give up what was rightly his from eternity to take on the form. In fact, the word is not servant. Literally, the word is a slave. A slave. Let, let, me, let me say this. This is this mysterious choice, my friends. This is not something that you and I can grasp with the mind alone. These truths here are truths for the heart that goes to the head, not from the head to the heart. Look at it. It was a personal choice. This choice was not forced on him. It was a divine choice, not having to say, what will happen if I give these things up, what will happen to me? Please understand that Jesus did not stop being God when he came. He gave up his rights to exercise his godness. But he did not cease to become God. Look at this. The servant's image is a most significant symbol in the Bible. And in Christian religion... Descent, descent was a personal coming from within himself choice that Jesus made. So when the little children sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, they are not far off, friends. They're not far off. 
What is it that could make Jesus give up his glory, his, his godness? As Wesley puts it, veil in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Jesus knew that he was coming on earth as a slave. And it was a personal choice. It means voluntariliness, spontaneity. There was a certain joy and ecstasy. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And when God sent his son, it was because the son agreed with the father that he was willing to come because he didn't have to grasp onto his oneness with God. He could surrender that to God in his human form. It was a personal choice. Let me suggest to you again, friends, this teaches us that for you and for me, there is a personal cost to commitment. There is a personal cost to commitment. If you and I are going to follow Jesus Christ as Lord, let me be upfront and say, it will cost you something. It cost him. We will celebrate with all kinds of, of things, my friends. For Christmas to be possible, a price was paid. We'll see the end of that price in a minute. Look at the process now. He emptied himself. He emptied himself. That is, the self that he was in eternity, he laid aside. He didn't stop being God. He, he was always God. That's why he could say, the Father and I are one. He knew this. He had that consciousness. But all through his earthly life, he surrendered that. He laid that aside. And he took on the form of a slave. The entering of Jesus was making himself, if you please, putting himself on the level of his creatures. So that when Jesus was seen being, formed, being seen as a man in Galilee, in Jerusalem, people could not understand this man has to be crazy. He looks like any other human being, yet he's claiming to be God. That's what it means, being seen, being found in fashion as a man. <laughs> C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says, don't come with any rubbish. Don't come with any rubbish that Jesus Christ was a good man, and that is it. Because a good man would not merely say what Christ says unless it was true. I and the Father are one. And if he was not good saying that, he was a deceptor, a deceiver. So either he's right, and we are wrong, and if that is so, our obligation is to listen to him. A mysterious choice. I cannot explain to you, friends, how, how, how God 
the eternal Son of God. The Word that existed before the beginning of time existed for all eternity. How the Word became a babe in a woman's womb. I can't explain that. But let me suggest to you something that I am seeing more and more. That when we try to understand before believing, we keep searching and never come to answers. See, in the philosophy of Christianity, knowing is not believing. Believing is knowing. I must come to the place where I, before I try to understand God, who is above me, who is beyond me, who is perfect in everything, if I, who am not perfect, who am limited, if I try to say, this is what I think ought to be, then my friends, I am playing God, and there's only one loser in that, and that's yours truly. I can't understand that. And let me suggest to you, I want to say this because I don't want to think that, well, you know me, I shouldn't have to explain that. A life without mystery is a life that is not worth living. If, if I only live with the now, with the taste, with the touch, with the seeing there is nothing more, oh, friends, just listen to Samuel Beckett. <laughs> back in the 60s, when he says, I am nothing, there is nothing outside of me, I don't need to aspire to anything, listen to Bertrand Russell, you are nothing more than collocations, you're, you're absolutely not. If that's the kind of life that I am called to live, my friends, who wants to live that kind of life? See, a life of mystery says that there are things in this world, in fact, it takes my mind to Job saying, <laughs> I, I like what Job says here, if I could only find God, I would ask him questions that he has to answer to satisfy me. I, I don't see why. And so God allowed Job for 37 chapters to wallow in his own self-righteousness, to wallow in his own questions. And then in chapter 38, God says, okay, have you had enough? And then God begins to open a world that Job didn't realize existed. Where were you? And God... And at the end of the book of Job, isn't it interesting that Job didn't say, now I understand. He didn't say that. You know what he said? I didn't know what I was saying. I have heard of you. And now I see something of who you are. Listen to this. Now I abhor my self-life. See, mystery, my friends, is telling us that there's more to life than the physical. There's more to life than just what we see and do every day. I'm almost always amazed. Moses in the wilderness, back and forth for 40 years, back and forth, and one day... He saw a bush that he passed by for 40 years every day. Perhaps if he goes to work in the morning until evening, twice a day for 40 years, he saw that bush. And one day he saw something. He saw that bush burning, but it was not being consumed. All of a sudden, the mysterious became visible. The mysterious choice 
But look at the mitigating, the migrating, not the mitigating, the migrating choice. Taking, this is the incarnation, in heaven, moving toward Bethlehem that night. How this mystery was taking place. Here is Jesus becoming a man. From a form which is God, because God, to a form which is man, because man. And as Jesus was very God, of very God, in the form of God, he is very man, of very man, in the form of man. From the divine to the human, from royalty to a servant. The Son of Man, listen to what he says. The Son of Man is come into the world not to be served, but to serve. Not to be served. Didn't he have a right to be served? If he is is the Lord of glory, if angels bow down before him, then my friends, when he comes to earth, he should come in a way that we would recognize that he's the one who left heaven's glory. But you see, only the eyes of faith can see him that way. When Christmas is simply a secular holiday, we have no reason to bow down before the manger. Because that's not the way I would do it. Jesus was making a migrating choice. He was moving from one place to another, from one position to another position. And he came, he came in such a way that John puts it this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He was from the beginning, and the Word, here's the Word, became flesh. Here is the migration from the divine to the human from heaven to earth. But then we want to come, lastly, to the amazing death, verse 8. Look at this verse again, friends. He emptied himself, says verse 7, taking the form of a man, of a servant, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. When Jesus left heaven, he came not so much that we might celebrate his coming, but that we might be rescued by his dying. The stop was not in Jerusalem. The stop was not in Bethlehem. The stop, my friends, was on a hill called Calvary. See, Jesus didn't die in a room with people around him. He didn't die in a hospital. 
he literally surrendered himself to the very creatures he had made. This is called the humiliation of Christ. The humiliation. When we say that Christ humbled himself, it means, my friends, that he was allowing himself to take on all the ridicule and the scorn. Hebrews chapter 11, chapter 12, verse 3 says, you consider Jesus who endure such words of disgust by sinners. They said to him, you are born, you, you don't even know your father. We, 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 I hate to use the word. You're born without any human completion. You, can, you know what that word is. I can't use it. He was denied his deity, not by God, but by man. They mocked him. Around the cross, there's a, there's a beautiful, beautiful passage. Jesus judged by, by, by human beings. It's in Matthew 26, 61 to 63. Jesus is being interrogated by the chief priest and the elders. And the chief priest said to him, Are you the Son of God? And Jesus answered not a word. Are you the Son of God? And Jesus answered not a word. Are you the Son of God? And Jesus answered not a word. And then the chief priest said something. I know something that will make you answer me. It's in Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 1. If someone is brought under oath to give witness to something he knows and denies it, then he becomes guilty. And the chief priest said to Jesus, I adjure you, bring you under oath, are you the Son of God? Jesus answered. If he had failed to answer, he would be a sinner like you and me. Here, here is this wonderful, magnificent migration where Jesus allows himself to be answerable to human beings. And my friends, if God the Son did that, do you and I have any right not to answer to one another? That's what Paul is saying. Let me quickly end with this. Not only the, the part of humiliation, but the part of hostility. He became obedient to death, even the death of a cross. <laughs> I, I, I don't know anything much about the lady, but I know that I understand that when Madonna is doing some of her whatever she does, that she has the cross on her. I've seen some hip-hop Hip-hop? That's what they do? Hip-hop? I, I don't know them. I, I listen to music. I, <laughs> they will have earrings with a cross in their ear. Or they would have on, on their lapel cross. My friends, when it says even the death of a cross, Jesus was not talking about decorations. <coughs> the cross was a despised identification let me quickly give you an idea. Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion, except in extreme uh, cases. Uh, Cicero, in one of his speeches, condemned any Roman ever be identified with a cross. Listen to what he says. 
It is the most cruel and, and disgusting punishment. A little later he declared, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog a Roman citizen is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him? What? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe the horrid deed. He even said the cross should never be thought of, expressed by a Roman citizen. Cicero thought that the cross was the most despicable thing. We use it for decoration today. Jesus came from highest heaven, the one who gives life by his word. And he comes into human history and he confronts people and he declares not only his divinity but his humanity. And he says, my humanity is so that I can die for you because what is happening on the cross is what should happen to you. And we say, away with this man. We will have nothing to do with him. From below, he was blasted with a taunting. From above, he was dropped on the ugliness of the darkness. Darkness is a symbol of the curse. So that at the end of Christ's place on the cross, we hear him at the end of the period of darkness. Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here, my friends, cursed by God, taunted by man, the Son of God remained on the cross because the whole journey from eternity to time was to die was to give his life a ransom for many. Christmas is costly. I, I invite you to put into the factor of the celebration of Christmas the cost to God. I end this morning with one of my favorite songs, the last verse I love so much. I repeat it again and again, almost daily in my prayer. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. Oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, may I never, never outlive my love for thee. Amen.